Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, the All-Iowa Reads Committee will reveal their picks for 2024, a book for adults, a book for teens, and a book for young readers. But first, we're going to talk about water in Iowa. Iowa is home to more than 4,700 miles of river. That's not counting the Mississippi or the Missouri. We also have hundreds of thousands of streams, lakes, and ponds. And we have some serious concerns about water quality in this state. In 2011, the Iowa DNR commissioned a survey designed to find out what Iowans knew about their water quality and how they felt about it. Now, a little over a decade later, a new survey has just been published, Water Issues in Iowa, a survey of Iowans and college students. It was Conducted by the Conservation Learning Group at Iowa State University and designed by Jacqueline Comito. She teaches at Iowa State and is the program director of Water Rocks and the Iowa Learning Farms. She's presenting the findings through an Iowa Learning Farms webinar today at noon. Hello, Jackie. Hi, Charity. Thanks for having me. Well, it is wonderful to have you. And let's go back to 2011, um, the the year that the survey was conducted in 2011. There was a whole lot going on that year. Can you paint a picture for me? Well, in 2011, it was actually more listening sessions and less survey. They wanted to go in deep to get qualitative data about what was happening in the state and then asked me to to do that. So that report Uh, Water Qualities Matters to Us All that was published back then was based on listening sessions, but also I had conducted like 30 additional listening sessions with all the key stakeholders and players in the state over the three years prior to that. So we had a lot of data in which to frame the situation. But you're right, 2011 was kind of a pivotal moment in the state of Iowa. Uh, We had the uh, nutrient... um, Reduction strategy was in the works, but it hadn't been released yet. We were working on the DNR's non-point source management plan, and that's what they had done that research for. Um, But uh, so we were at the cusp of something new starting and uh, the way we had always done things. So that it's kind of a pivotal year, 2011. Right. And so the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy was released. It was in response to recommendations from the Environmental Protection Agency, recommendations to improve water quality in Iowa. And the nutrient reduction strategy has a lot of information in it. It is also entirely voluntary. So it is recommendations, but um, there were not policy changes so much um, included in that movement. But it also did start a whole lot of conversations. So thinking back to 2011, as you were doing all of those listening sessions, tell me a little bit about what you learned about Iowans and their water. Well, I would say back in 2011, while there were concerns about water quality, uh, it, it certainly didn't have some of the intensity or I would say anger that I heard um, in the last year or so when I was doing the work. Um, people do care about their water, but it perhaps wasn't a priority in 2011. Uh, the non-point source management plan was probably the significant document at the time addressing Uh, non-point source water quality issues. And so a lot of emphasis was placed on the development of that. And that, too, is not a regulatory document. That is also based on the voluntary system. 
So let's talk a little bit about water this year. Now, those of us who pay a lot of attention to water quality issues, we've heard a lot about water quality this year. Um, We saw a lot of advisories coming out of the DNR this summer because of E. coli and microcystin toxins. Tell me what we're learning right now. So um, I'm an anthropologist. I'm not a hard scientist, so I'm not a I'm not a biologist. Okay. Well, we do know that our water, I mean, you don't have to be a biologist to look at our water and see the murky green or the blue green on top and to know that's not something you want to jump into. Right. And there was a biological sampling of 150 different streams across Iowa last year did find that roughly two thirds had poor or fair water quality. Oh, so yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, th- I think there's no question in the state that we have a water we have water quality challenges and it's not just that's our surface water that's the water we can see there's also issues concerning our well water the groundwater the water you can't see so you know the state right now is 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 really challenged and i think the question is what are we going to do about it so with this survey that that you just conducted what was your goal so my goal was um it, it, it is not meant to be a representative sample of the state of Iowa. Instead, I decided let's target some of those voices we don't hear from as much. So half of our sample is actually college students. We worked with the University of Iowa, UNI, and Iowa State and sent the survey out to all the undergraduates in those three um, regent universities. And while the response rate doesn't sound impressive, we ended up with 2,500 surveys, which is impressive. And gave us a good sense of where um, the average, you know, undergraduate was thinking and feeling about water quality. And why did you want to reach out to undergraduates? Because it's a group that we don't hear from that much. And it's also the group that is, if they stay in the state, are left to helping us solve these problems. So we wanted to see where were, where were their mindset? What were they thinking about this? Were they as entrenched in some of the uh, uh, arguments that we've heard a million times from their parents and their grandparents? Um, it just, to me, it was interesting to find out. And I have gone on to the campuses 10 years earlier as a part of that earlier project. I did actually do some on-campus interviews with college students um, to talk about water quality and climate change. And so this time we said, hey, let's survey them, but then let's go on campus and interview them too. So to me, it's just vitally important to understand, you know, what are our young people thinking and feeling? Because they're going to be put in the hot seat here soon to help solve these problems. And you conducted these surveys. You analyzed the results of the survey of college students separately from members of the general public, right? I did. And part of that was because they were such a they're half of the surveys that if I tried to then just present all the surveys um in a general way, then this, the, it would skew toward the students' opinions. And the students' opinions are a little bit more like college students in general believe that government can help solve the problem. The rest of the general population in Iowa that was a part of my survey is a little maybe, I don't want to say cynical because I can't give an intent to their response sure. to a survey. But less but inclined less certain, to think that yeah, government less is certain going to solve the fact. problem. <laughs> okay. Um, so younger people are more confident the government can solve problems. The older folks are either one or two things, not confident or don't want government to try to solve it. Well, let's talk about the young people first. Uh, tell me some of the interesting things that you discovered. How concerned are young people about water quality? Well, 
they're concerned. They are concerned. They're mostly, I mean, they're concerned about their drinking water. And as and those of us who live in the state understand that anybody in Iowa City is going to think your drinking water is horrible. And people in Ames are going to say their drinking water is great. And we saw that in the survey is that students Having Ames, tasted both of the water <laughs> waters that you're talking about, I, I totally see those results. Yes. So, yeah. And actually, that's something interesting because our first contact with water is actually our drinking water, you know, in terms of our response to it. You and I always kind of fell in the middle. It was neither horrible nor was it great. You know, and that actually all of their responses from groundwater to other situations, you and I students always kind of fell in the middle um, it seemed like the, this wasn't just an interesting thing that we kind of discovered as we were looking at the data, that the closer they were to their the the center of their watershed, like the closer they were to the river, the, the more they thought w- that water quality issues were a challenge and needed to be addressed. Interesting. So, that so you, puts, can't, you can't say that that's the reason why, but maybe the fact that University of Iowa students are walking across the Iowa River on a daily basis, maybe that does have something to do with it. They look at it, they smell it every day. It, it impacts their lives from flooding to even droughty. This year, I'm sure the smell because of uh, the drought impacted them. Um, and then just what it looks like. So, yeah, I think the, 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 the river is just so much more visible for them. And in at in Iowa State, while we have College Creek and we have Iowa River and Skunk, it, it's not as prevalent. We're not we're crossing it, but we're not really seeing it. And in Cedar Falls, the river is a Falls, couple miles away. Yeah, yeah, it's not even a an issue. Well, you mentioned climate change, which is something that Gen Z, the college students of today, tend to be very aware of and concerned about. What did they say about that? That was actually the biggest change that I saw over the uh, the difference between 10 years ago and today when I was talking to college students is 10 years ago when I asked them about climate change. I remember I remember one one kid at the University of Iowa was like, yeah, you know, I think it's a problem, but I got exams and I'm just not going to worry about it today. Without exception, there was maybe just one or two students at all three universities who didn't think it was an issue, the rest of them felt it was urgent. Something needed to be done. We have got to act. Anybody who thinks it's not a problem is is crazy. And I remember as I'm listening to them, I'm thinking to myself, let's quit putting all the experts in front of Congress and our policymakers, and let's just let these college students talk to them because it's their future. And, um, and, and they're I would say depressed, and actually I would say I was hearing anxiety, too. There was clear anxiety in their voices as they talked about climate change. That's, that was a huge change. Wow, that's that's really interesting. But also it's interesting to think about. So the students were very concerned about climate change, but less concerned about water quality? They were, they were concerned. The students who understood what was going on with water quality were concerned. I just think water hasn't become as prevalent. So the one thing I did learn, because I would say, well, where are you learning about climate change? And where are you discussing these things? And across the board, they were learning about it in different classes, from their theater classes to their lit classes to their science classes. Whereas water quality, I think, was still being discussed in science classes. So right there, a lot fewer students are being exposed to the issues around water quality. 
it just was it just not impacting. Also, you can't turn on the television today and not hear a reference to climate change on one way or another. It's 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 infiltrating everything, which from my perspective is not a bad thing. It's raising awareness. We are um, that isn't happening when it comes to water quality. Jackie, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Jacqueline Comito. She teaches at Iowa State University and is the program director of Water Rocks and the Iowa Learning Farms. And she was part of the conservation learning group at Iowa State University that just published a new survey. It's called Water Issues in Iowa, a survey of Iowans and college students. We will talk more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, we will find out what the new All Iowa Reads books for 2024 are revealed on Talk of Iowa today. But right now, we're talking about water quality, what we know about water quality, how we feel about water quality in Iowa. A new report has just been published. It's called Water Issues in Iowa, a survey of Iowans and college students conducted by the Conservation Learning Group at Iowa State University and designed by Jacqueline Comito. She teaches at Iowa State and is the program director of Water Rocks and Iowa Learning Farms. She's presenting the findings through an Iowa Learning Farms webinar today at noon. And also this report is online. So if you go to conservationlearninggroup.org slash research, you can find it and read it for yourself. And so, Jackie, before the break, we were talking about you. You analyzed the results of these conversations with college students separate from the conversations with other Iowans. Uh, is there anything more you want to say about these college students before we move on to the, the next part of the research? And and then we actually com- we compared them to the general responses when it was relevant or when it was important. And I would say the one thing that really stood out is that it didn't matter if the student had a farming background or not. The sense that there were water quality problems and that something needed to be done about it was stronger than we got from the farming population in the rest of the survey. Okay, so Gen Z is more concerned. Yes, I would agree with that. Well, let's talk about the other folks that you talked to for this survey. Who participated? Who were they? We opportunistically sampled using some of like the Iowa Learning Farms mailing list. We also had some typed in plat maps. We worked with a few different organizations and they sent it out. We had both an online and a and a written survey that got mailed out. And we sent it uh, far and wide and um, we got another 2,500 surveys back. I would say there is an overrepresentation of farmers in it if you would just look at the population of the state of Iowa, but I think it's important. I mean, that's part of what I do for my job is listen to farmers. So it's important that they that we are listening to them. There's also a representation of urban people who live in our more rural areas. Like 
we don't usually call those people rural people or urban people, but those people who are not living out in the country, who are living in small towns or small cities throughout the state. Were these people who elected to be part of the survey or did you specifically reach out to to try to get this mix of folks? Um, They elected to be a part of the survey. We sent the survey far and wide. Yeah. um, And this is what we got back. And actually, it was a pretty decent. uh, People want to talk about water quality or want to respond to surveys because to the mailed survey, it was a decent response rate. And if you ask me what that was, I cannot pull it off the top of my head right now. But at the end of the report, I break all that down for everybody so they can just, you know, my uh, uh, disclosures are at the end so you can really see how I did and why I did and what we did. All right. So tell me what you found from this more general population of Iowans. Are they concerned about water quality? They are concerned, but I think I think they don't know what to do about it. I think they're concerned. I think they all feel like there are challenges, although it's interesting when you get into the when you ask the college students, they're very clear that the drinking water is is a problem. When you get to the general population, they all think their drinking water is just fine. And that includes those people who reported in the survey that they have well water. I know from a different study that I did that a lot of people don't test their well water. So thinking their drinking water is fine is just, it's a feeling, it's not a fact. So, but they have more confidence in the drinking water. That, that's one thing that comes right out. In terms of our surface water, they have less confidence in their surface water. They can see it. They know that there are challenges Groundwater is the one area. So one of the nice things we did with this study is while mine wasn't a representative sample of the state of Iowa, I thought I would compare it to other studies that were more representative and just see how we compared. And so one of the changes I saw is that people seem to have a better understanding of groundwater this go around when they were responding on the survey than like in 2007. Um, the, The study, if you read it, lays out how these other studies and how we're comparing them. So we do see some increase in knowledge, which is nice since this is what I do for my job. It's nice to see that we are having some impact, but I didn't really see that much of an increase in urgency on the surveys. The listening sessions were a different story. Tell me about that. Yeah, we did three. We held three at in urban areas and we did three with farmer groups and farmers were only invited to those. And then, you know, it's hard to get people to an urban listening session. We did the best job we could. And I thought we had pretty good attendance for those. Uh, We actually got better attendance at the urban listening session than we did 10 years ago when we did it. So that does show an increase in interest that we can get them to come out and talk to us. In the listening sessions, clearly they're coming to a water quality listening session and there is um, passion there. There was also There was anger on both sides. I heard anger coming out of the farmers. They're kind of tired of hearing about water quality. They are tired of getting blamed. And they're also tired that they think they've done a bunch of things and they're not getting credit for what they've done. On the urban side, they think, to quote one of them, that they're being gaslit. Like the nutrient reduction strategy is there's no way we implement that. That's one of of the urban people said. And so they just wish they, they would be told the truth of how long this is going to take, what it's going to take, and that in some ways they think it's going to be impossible to do. So they're on some level with some of the urban people, there wasn't a lot of hope, and yet they show up to a listening session, which tells me they've got some hope. And on the farmer side, I'm not even sure they totally want to be having the conversation anymore. They're feeling blamed and scapegoated. 
is what I, I hear you saying. And that's not anything new, right? Right. If you read the report 10 years ago, the blame game was happening then. Um, so it was interesting. One of the things I finally, you know, the nutrient reduction strategy pretty much spells out where our non-point source pollution problem is. And the vast majority of it is coming from our agricultural practices. So I, I looked at the farmer groups and I said, okay, can you tell me, because I have urban people asking me this, how can we talk about these issues where it won't sound like we're blaming you? How do we do that? And they kind of shrugged their shoulders and had no answer for me. And that's still my question out there for anybody listening. How can we talk about this where we actually show what the challenges are and where we need to make the solutions? How do we do that so that it doesn't sound like we're blaming farmers? Because I think the one thing that really came out of the urban listening sessions is they actually understand the challenges of farming in Iowa better than the farmers think they do. A lot of my listening session people, urban people, had roots on the farm, from the farm or extended family in the farm. 42% of them did. And I think in the state of Iowa, that is often the case that who who lives in our urban areas, they are more connected to the, agri- to the agricultural areas and the rural areas than I think we often give um, um, our urban areas credit for. So they, they seem to understand them, but then they're asking that question. So how can we solve these problems then? We understand that you are at a disadvantage if you do conservation. We understand that um, that it's challenging and that it's not that easy. It's going to take a lot of money. But how do we do it? And so I think the urban people are asking that. And I found a lot of parallels between what the farmers were saying and what the urban people. So they're not as far apart as one would imagine. And as one of my urban people said, um, you know, I'd like to feel like we have some shared values. And from listening, I, th- I think we do. No farmer wants to hurt a river or a lake. And yet the practice that they do have those consequences. So what can we do differently? Um, there's a lot of anger in the state right now. And it's not just about agriculture. I just think there's a lot of anger, right? Right. And you're talking about a, an urban-rural divide, which is something you know we see in voting. Uh, urban people tend to vote a different way for many rural Iowans, not universally by any stretch of the imagination, but we do see that pattern. So did you hear, were people saying that, that they, rural people were saying that that city people don't know what they're talking about and vice versa? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yes. That, that came out pretty loud and clear. The urban people don't understand. And the, ur- the, the urban people were saying, you know, why can't farmers, why can't, like, what can we do? I think on the urban side, because while they're greater in numbers in the state, they have less ability to actually change anything. Um, they have their own little pieces of land where they can, like, not fertilize their lawns, but they could all change that and never do that again, and it wouldn't improve our water quality in the state. So I think part of their anger might come from feeling a little helpless and feeling like they, they don't have a voice and, and, and don't have an ability to change anything. And I think on the farmer side, I think they also maybe are feeling a little helpless because the system isn't actually geared toward them putting in all the practices that we would need in order to improve water quality. Like we have to have edge of field practice. We need to do infield practices. This is all going to cost money. Where is it going to come from? The state of Iowa is actually investing a significant amount of money to put in practices. But the amount of money we need is significantly higher than than they are putting into it right now. 
It's going to take a state effort. It's going to take a federal effort. It's going to take agribusinesses. It's going to take all of us working together. And I think on the individual farmer side, maybe there's a little bit of that feeling like they're doing the best job they can. They don't know how they can do more. So, Jackie, um, we're talking about the water issues in Iowa, a survey of Iowans and college students, a new report that has just been published by the Conservation Learning Group at Iowa State University. Where do we go from here? I mean, you you looked at, at some of the same things that we talked about back in 2011. You're finding a little more awareness of water quality challenges in Iowa than you found back in 2011. But what, where do we go with this? One, I think we have to figure out a way to be able to talk to each other. And one of, one of, uh, after one of the listening sessions, one of the urban people came up to me and said, well, maybe the next listening sessions, you do have to be bringing farmers and urban people into the same room. And can we just have a discussion? And, you know, can we do it and can we be respectful and can we really listen to each other? Um, and, you know, that's not a bad idea. I think that's one thing because so we have to keep a dialogue going um, and we have to open up more people to the table so that they can have their voices heard. So I think I'm always one that says that we just need to communicate with each other better. I do think we need to keep doing what we've already laid the groundwork. Uh, you mentioned that I direct Water Rocks. Well, the Water Rocks program is in our K-12 through uh, school system, and educating our youth is always the best way to create a better future. And we are out there, you know, every almost every school day teaching some classroom of, of young people about water and the water challenges, and we do it in a way so that they feel hopeful because we don't want to leave them thinking there's nothing they can do. We want to tell them that there is something they can do, and here's some of the things we can do. And just learning more is something they can do. So I think we keep educating our youth. And then as um, adults, I think just like Charity, like you do, I bet you've done quite a few programs on water quality, right? I have. Yeah. Let's keep doing it. And let's get some other people to the table to discuss it. We need to get perspectives from a, a lot. Like this report brings in some different perspectives. We need to keep doing that. So we need to have a statewide dialogue about this that tries to get out of the blaming game. You know, when one of the farmers looked at me and said, I don't even want to leave my house some days because it just feels like the minute you do, you've got somebody telling you that you're awful. And I looked at him and I said, you know, sometimes I feel exactly the same way. We just got to let the, you know, anger is a good thing if it motivates you to change yourself, to do something differently, to do something better. It is not useful if you think you're going to be able to use your anger to change anyone else. So I think everybody needs to Look at their anger and decide, well, how do I turn that into action? How can I be positive? How can I work towards solutions? And how can I help? I feel you asking this giant question that we have about so many issues. I mean, you talked about climate change earlier, but that is how do we convince people to change their behaviors without penalizing them? Right. And you know what? I just, I just watched a, a wonderful documentary about uh, Jane Goodall last night. And the one thing that she looks at people and she tries to tell, she teaches young people. She was the first to say, we need to talk to young people if we want to make any difference. If we want to have different policymakers, if we want to have better policies, we got to start with the young people. And she did that, I think it was probably 30 to 40 years ago. And she said what she tells the young people is, you can't speak to people in anger. It won't get you anywhere. Anger never changed anybody's mind. But you got to speak to their heart. So how do we speak to people's heart in the state about our water? 
Well, one of the things is we take a note from one of the urban people who finally, during the listening session, he just stopped and said, what are we talking about here, people? Water is life. And when we remember that as human beings, we cannot exist without healthy, clean water, and all those animals we love in the state also cannot exist, that's the heart talk. And we've just got to reach out to everybody's heart and say, we're, and, and let our solutions come from there. Jackie, I mean, you, you're out educating students all the time, but you're also seeing this information that we get about, you know, two-thirds of the water in Iowa has poor or fair water quality. We saw all of those advisories coming out of the DNR this summer for E. coli and microcystin toxins. This is not new. It feels like it's getting more every year. What gives you hope? Yeah. <sighs> Man, that is that is such a tough question. What gives me hope? Well, one, talking to young people gives me hope. When I see their eyes light up, when they make a connection, and when I see, you know, that we get, I don't know, hundreds of drawings from kids every year with the Water Rocks program where they've, they've drawn the lesson they've learned. And we look at these as we look at a wetland and we look at this, and it just puts a smile on our face. You know, so teaching young kids give me hope. But also, you know, I've been doing my job working with farmers for 17, almost 18 years. And another thing that gives me hope is we've got some amazing farmers out there doing some amazing things. And they really do want to solve these problems. And they want to help solve the climate change problem. You know, maybe not enough of them, but the ones I work with inspire me. I know that I can be kind of down and depressed about what I'm doing. And then I go to a field day at one of our farmers and I listen to what they're saying. I look at the people gathered And I think one person at a time, we can do the change. We need one person at a time. Now, the movement needs to start happening a little bit faster. But again, it's still going to take one conversation at a time. What do you hope people take away from looking at your report, reading it? Well, I hope they they take away the understanding that maybe we're not as far along as we think we are. If you think about the the people I work with, the state agencies, you know, we're, we're in an echo chamber. And we think because we are intensely working on this that everybody out there is paying attention. And I think it's important to see maybe not as many people are paying attention as we would like. So how do we help raise their awareness and get people to pay attention? And I think it's just for some of the state agencies to look at and say also, okay, here's some of our challenges and here's maybe some of the things we need to do and help people understand uh, what's going on. Um, So that's one thing I want to do. But besides, it's just going to help see where they sit on this spectrum in attitudes of water quality. Where do they fit in? Are they more like some of the urban people? Or are they more, more like some of the farmers? Where, where do they fit in? And then how can they get involved? I hope this report, even though it's really meant to be a factual thing, but it says to people, you know what? I got to be part of the change. How do I get involved? What can I do? Jackie Camito, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Charity. It's, it, it was fun. Jacqueline Camito teaches at Iowa State University and is the program director of Water Rocks and Iowa Learning Farms. She is part of the group, the Conservation Learning Group at Iowa State University, that has just published a new report. You can read this report. Go to conservationlearninggroup.org slash research. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Since 2003, the Iowa Center for the Book has been picking an all-Iowa reads book. The goal is to foster a sense of unity through reading, to encourage Iowans statewide to come together to read and talk about a single book and what it means to them. Starting in 2018, the All-Iowa Reads Committee expanded the program to include three books, one for adults, one for teens, and one for children. Today, we have the honor of revealing the picks for 2024. In a moment, Janae Jackson-Doring, Youth Services Consultant for the State Library of Iowa, will be here to tell us about the selections for young adult and children. But first, to reveal the all-Iowa Reads book for adults, Cameron Kronschnabel is here. She is patron services librarian at the Charles City Public Library and on the adult all-Iowa Reads selection committee. Hello, Cameron. Hi, Charity. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thank you so much for being here. And tell me a little bit about the selection process. When you come together as a committee, what are you thinking about? So we come together about three times, kind of spread throughout the course of several months, uh, the year before we select that book. Um, We come together looking for things, looking for things in books, for example, um, Uh, We want some uh, Midwest connection, ideally. Uh, We also are looking for things such as, um, uh, you know, a message that we feel is important for all Iowans to read. We're looking for something that is somewhere in between academic and very, very, very easy to read. We would like to try and find a sweet spot in there to make the text accessible. And we also try to make it a pick that can be found in multiple formats. Uh, so always an audiobook, uh, available usually as like an ebook. And we try to make a paperback book possible to buy um, just because we want to make sure that libraries who want to buy multiple copy sets don't have to spend a whole large chunk of their budget to do so. How many books did you start with before you whittled it down to the one we'll reveal in a moment? Oh, my gosh. So this is my first year on the committee, so I can't speak from experience for past years. In past years, it's normal to have about 15 books. This year, I think we had about 25. Oh, wow. We started with, yeah, we started with about 25 in April, and by the end of September, we had whittled it down to this final book that I'm excited to talk about today. All right, tell me the title. All right, the book is called The Seed Keeper by Diane Wilson. Um, Diane is an author from Minnesota, and the book was published through, um, I believe, a very small press that is uh, located within Minnesota as well. All right. So Diane Wilson is the author of The Seed Keeper. Tell me what it's about. So this book has multiple perspectives in it, but the main perspective that we see through the vast majority of the book uh, is from a Dakota woman living in Minnesota named Rosalie Ironwing. Uh, you find out fairly early within the book um, that she was raised by her father to sort of adhere to these Dakota teachings and be close to nature in a fairly isolated uh, house that is within the woods in Minnesota. But when she is 12, her father dies of a heart attack. She doesn't know fully what happened to her mother, but her mother is not in the picture. And at this time, it's the 1970s. Um, 
our government in the United States has not always been very kind to Indians, to put it mildly. And so she ends up placed in foster care, not within her own community, but instead several miles away with different white families in Mankato, Minnesota. Um, and so the book then ends up covering mainly the time from when she's about 17 or 18. She's just reaching the cusp of adulthood um, and how she spends the next 20 to 30 years trying to reconnect uh, with her Dakota heritage and honor who she is while still being surrounded by uh, this culture that isn't really hers and without having Native community to support her. Um, to harken back to the title, the main way that she manages to accomplish this is she discovers that she really, really loves to garden. Um, and unintentionally, this sort of calls back to many of her ancestors uh, as they worked on the Minnesota land uh, and also tried to keep seeds to save from year to year. Um, it's a beautiful book, and I'm really excited for everybody to read it, honestly, and see what everybody else uh, enjoys about it. Well, and obviously there is this Midwestern connection. Um, Diane Wilson herself is indigenous. It sounds, I, I don't know a lot about her, but I've read a bio online and just listening to you. It sounds like there may be a little bit of autobiographical influence in the novel. Um, what is it that, that made the committee decide this was the right book for 2024? The book has many different themes that we feel are important to bring up to Iowans. It's really ironic that you were talking about environmental and water conservation, actually, earlier on the show, because that's one major theme that pops up a lot, is uh, trying to make sure that the Minnesota environment is staying healthy from a Native perspective. Rosalie feels very passionate about that, as do a couple of other friends of hers. Um, it also teaches folks more about the Native experience, and how some of that trauma has filtered down through different generations. I mentioned that uh, Rosalie is our main perspective, but she is not our only perspective. We get um, some pr flashbacks to even as far back as I think the 1800s as we see some of her ancestors um, uh, living through some pretty tumultuous times in the Midwest uh, as Native Americans. Um, but it also struck, it struck me particularly as really interesting. Uh, last year's All Iowa Reads book, um, it was titled How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. Last year's book, uh, this year's book, I suppose I should say, it's still 2023, right. was especially fantastic and fantastical. And it took us to even different planets as it projected what life might look like 500 years into the future. This book has a lot more of what I would call recognizable scenery, but it's from a new perspective. I mean, you know, Rosalie Ironwing, we established that she is Native American, and her perspective is very different than that of which I grew up with, for sure, but there are many recognizable things that we see. She's describing small-town Minnesota, which highly, uh, highly um, correlates with small-town Iowa, for sure, but there are also little instances where, for example, they talk about corn detasseling. And I imagine readers will read these things and think, oh, yes, I, I know people who've corn detasseled or I've corn detasseled myself. 
Um, there's some very recognizable down-to-earth imagery uh, and setting that takes place in this book. Um, and so I, we think that it would be a very good connection to many, many different Iowans because of that. I am sure that there are already people who have put this on hold at their local library as we've been talking. And of course, you want everybody to read this book, Cameron. Remind me just briefly of some of the opportunities that, that Iowans who read the book will have to interact with the author and other readers. So there are typically a couple of different uh, webinars that come up. Question and answer with the author is a pretty typical one that will take place uh, sometime early in January or February, as I believe when that usually gets scheduled. Um, We always offer, uh, from the State Library of Iowa, they always offer many different book sets that can be available for libraries to borrow throughout the state. Uh, So we hope to encourage different book clubs that way. I also know that it's pretty typical in Des Moines that the author will come and visit for the Des Moines Book Festival to come and talk about their book. Um, So we hope that we will reach many different people because of that. Uh, and if anyone wants to know what events are coming up and what's scheduled, they can check out the State Library of Iowa website and the Iowa Center for the Book, uh, where information will be posted as we get things scheduled. Cameron, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Charity. Cameron Kronschnabel is patron services librarian at the Charles City Public Library. She's also on the Adult All Iowa Reads Selection Committee. Again, the Adult All Iowa Reads Selection for 2024 is The Seed Keeper, a novel by Diane Wilson. And now it's time to find out about the books for young readers. Janae Jackson Doring, Youth Services Consultant with the State Library of Iowa and Chair of the All Iowa Reads Kids and Teens Selection Committee is here. Hello, Janae. Hi, Charity. How are you? Great. It is wonderful to have you back again. And uh, let's dive right in. What is the teen All Iowa Reads this for 2024? All right. Drum roll, please. <laughs> the 2024 selection for teens for All Iowa Reads is Hollow Fires. It is written by Samira Ahmed, and it is about a young teen named Safia. She is 17. She's a senior of Indian and American descent, an activist, and the editor-slash-journalist at her prep school's newspaper. She is also crushing over Richard, the cute senior with the dimples that girls swoon over. However, she can't shake off her instincts after finding the body of 14-year-old freshman Jawad Ali at a park in Chicago. Now, a little bit about Jawad. Jawad is the son of Iraqi immigrants. He loved to cosplay. He loved it so much that he built a jack a jetpack out of recycled materials as a cosplay item, but his teacher mistook it for a bomb. Now, everyone at school wants to forget Jawad, or the bomb boy, as he was called, but not Sophia. She knows his life mattered, and he was loved. And she's driven by Jawad's haunting voice who comes to her as a ghost. Help me. Find me. Please don't leave me here in the park alone. I'm cold. I need to be buried. I need to be buried. So Sophia takes it upon herself to investigate what happened to Jawad. And what she uncovers could even hurt her in the process. Um, the committee loved this book. Um, it, it, this book is based on the real-life murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks. Um, the murderers were Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Uh, the two men were teens at the time, and they were just 
obsessed with uh, a lot of uh, theories. Um, but we loved it because it's fast-paced and I personally love it because the book is told through documents, interviews, podcast podcast excerpts with the characters, and it tackles the high school relationships, the dynamics of of high school life, while tackling themes of censorship, racism, and alternative facts. Wow. <laughs> That's a mouthful, huh? It is. It is. And now I have to say that it sounds like a really heavy read the way that you described it it also sounds like a real page turner it is it is a fast page turner i loved the twist and turns and the committee loved how sophia was just brave and brazen and just willing to go that extra mile to find out what happened to their classmate um well done it's a it's a great read so if you have a chance please pick it up and how many books did you consider before getting to this one <laughs> over, I want to say over 50, there were over 15 books on the list for teens oh, wow. before we whittled it down. That must have been a hard process. All right. So that is Hollow Fires by Samira Ahmed. And that is the young adult selection for the 2024 All Iowa Reads. And again, we talked about the opportunities throughout the, the year to possibly interact with the author and other readers. And you can find out more about those on the State Library of Iowa website, especially as things get scheduled. Let's talk about the children's book. What is the selection for this year? And this year, drumroll, <laughs> for 2024 for children's, the title this year is Tumble. And it's written by Celia C. Perez. And this story is about Addie or Adela. She's 12 years old. She lives with her mother and her mother's expecting a baby boy and her stepfather, Alex. Um, they are planning to get married and Alex really wants to adopt Addie. But Addie has questions, especially about her biological father, especially also when she finds a photo of him tucked away in her mother's things. Now, when Addie brings this up to her mother, her mother shuts it down. She just doesn't want to talk about him. Every time she brings it up, nope, nope, not talking about him. But Addie does some sleuthing and she finds out that her father is none other than Manny Bravo. Manny Bravo is a wrestler, and the Bravo family are a family of wrestlers, or luchadores. So she travels to New Mexico to meet her family, and she meets her cousins, Ava and Maggie, who are twins, who, are, who do these crazy, insane flips and moves. Then there's her paternal grandparents, Rosie and Pancho, and then her uncle, Mateo, who was a former wrestler. But Addie really wants Manny, her father, to be a part of her life. But Manny is on this dream. He's chasing the impossible dream of becoming a professional wrestling star. And it's all because of his father, who has dementia. And on top of all this, Addie has a big role in the middle school production of The Nutcracker, where she gets to show off some of those wrestling moves. But the committee chose it because it has great characterization. The, fa the family dynamics are very strong. Um, I just love that it teaches kids about finding their own sense of family, whether that family member is there or not. You have your own community of family. Um, and just 
hello, luchadores, wrestling. <laughs> How can you not get excited about wrestling in a story and promote that to kids? The appeal factor is so there. And I could see Well, and it's you- not just the professional wrestling. It's the masks. It's the costumes. Yes. It's yes. the whole thing. Absolutely. I mean, I could see you, librarians promoting this book and having programs about this book. Um, so it just really... Both of these titles have great appeal factor for kids and teens. And for kids and teens, what kinds of opportunities will they have throughout the year? Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. So many. Um, We will have our webinars. Um, We're we're working on the details on that. Um, But there'll be more, uh, more things to come. All right. And of course, we can find out all about them on the State Library of Iowa website. All you have to do is just search for All Iowa Reads, and that'll take you right to this program and tell you all about it. The children's All Iowa Read title is Tumble by Celia C. Perez. And Janae Jackson-Doring, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Janae Jackson-Doring, Youth Services Consultant for the State Library of Iowa. We've been talking about the All Iowa Reads selections for 2024, and I will repeat them again. The Adult All Iowa Reads selection for 2024 is The Seed Keeper, a novel by Diane Wilson. For Young Adults, Hollow Fires by Samira Ahmed. And for Children, Tumble by Celia C. Perez. You can find out more information on the State Library of Iowa website. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. We get production assistance from Kate Perez and Maddie Willis. We also had technical assistance today from Tony Sarabia and Nick Brinks. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbie.